Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On the podcast this week, every living Prime Minister has now denounced the government's already infamous internal market bill. As it passes the first hurdle in the Commons, is it a time bomb to blow up the Brexit talks, a distraction from the government's woeful performance on Covid, a bit of performative rule-breaking from a cabinet of eternal Kevin the Teenagers, or all three at once? And who is going to stand against it? Plus, it's a retro nostalgia special this week, as Britain revisits those misty, far-off, innocent days of April 2020. With Covid lockdowns back and a second spike on the way, we ask, what exactly has the government got so wrong? All this and more on today's bunker. Hello, before we start, don't forget the Bunker versus Romaniacs live Zoom on Thursday the 24th of September at 8pm. It's open to all Patreon backers. Search Patreon Bunker to find out more and sign up for early podcasts, mugs, t-shirts and much more. Now let's say hello to our crack team of COVID marshals who are gathering in large numbers as this podcast is classed as a grouse hunt for legal reasons and also because we've got to be grousing a lot. Ros Taylor <laughs> is now the editor of LSE's COVID blog. Ros, are you going to be a COVID marshal? Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm going to be completely on it. I see one family talking to another family <laughs> in the street and I, I, I'm going to dob them in, basically, just like tells, tells me to. This is a license to be uh, Warden Hodges from Dad's Army, isn't it? Put that mask on. Is this is this actually proper policy, or is it more Johnson vapor? Where here's an announcement. Isn't that great? Well, it's just. I mean, it. it, it what what uh, Patel said yesterday is actually uh, said today this morning is actually untrue. I mean, there's no legal definition of mingling really that's meaningful, and she didn't know what she was talking about, but she just thought that people shouldn't do that. So she said they shouldn't. But the trouble is, you know, with this stuff, we've not got enough police in this country or soldiers to enforce a full lockdown. So basically, we have to police ourselves, and this is what it's all about. And the trouble with this country, anyway, of course, if you see it as trouble, is that we have something called policing by consent. So what happens when you bring in other people who aren't actually police uh, officers to police you? It's it's all an open question. It's something that I think the government is trying to take advantage of. I think you've just given us a new subtitle for the podcast there. The, the trouble with this country, right? This, this is the trouble with this country, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> so we've had two exciting new COVID regulations come to, to, into effect in the past couple of weeks with no scrutiny. There's the £10,000 fine for organising gatherings and the rule of six. According to Tim Montgomery in the New Statesman today, the entire cabinet opposed the rule of six. And the £10,000 fine is being accused of suppressing not raves and parties, but actually demonstrations like Extinction Rebellion. Have we just handed the keys to an illiberal government in a, in a state of panic and confusion here? Basically, yes. Of course, raves and demos have a lot in common. Uh, They take place outside, they attract a lot of people, they tend to attract a lot of young people who can't necessarily be uh, policed in normal ways. But the problem the government has really got itself into here is equating indoor activity with outdoor activity. That, I think, is going to be a mistake because we know it doesn't spread as much outdoors. We didn't see a spike after the Black Lives Matter protests. We didn't see a spike after large numbers of people crowding out beaches. It's indoor that is really to be discouraged. And I think that's where the government is going to cover cropper. Also mingling with us this week is Alexandrea, writer, cook, singer, actor, and increasingly the vengeful Cassandra of Byline Times, where he's writing loads of good stuff. You should search him out. Good piece on sadopopulism this week. Alex, yeah, that, a, that's a Pornhub niche, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. Too right. Cover up your search history. As a theatre person, how do you feel about the two uh, West End shows reopening? Everybody's talking about Jamie and Six are coming back in November to herald the reopening, possibly, of theatre. I congratulate them uh, both on their courage and on their optimism. Um, (laughs) I I suspect there will be a few false starts with this, but I think what's becoming clear now is that we may have to live live with this for a long time, months, perhaps even years. And so we need to start finding ways of uh, existing uh, with it around. And Andrew Lloyd Webber has said that, told the DCMS rather, that the uh, the arts are at a point of no return. We often sort of find ourselves actually asking the question, is the government doing enough for the arts? But you do wonder what exactly could be done apart from further subsidies. If so, theatre is going to be at 30% capacity, that kind of thing. Art is never at the point of no return. Uh, it's, it's a basic human need to tell stories and hear stories. You know, Renaissance follows the Dark Ages. I know what Lloyd Webber means, and it relates to venues. What he's saying is that we are at the tipping point of starting to having to start from scratch, basically, because if all the venues closed, that is a structural 
problem for the arts. And so it's worthwhile not letting it happen. Our special guest this week is making her debut on the main show after a very illuminating Bunker Daily a few weeks ago. Miata Fanbole is Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation and a regular on the papers on telly. She was in the Cabinet Office under the Coalition and was a policy advisor to Ed Miliband. And she grew up in Tunbridge Wells, so she is literally disgusted at Tunbridge Wells. Miata, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. First up, tell us what the New Economics Foundation is all about, because listeners might not know. Yeah, so we are a, a think and do tank. Uh, we've been around for about 30 years uh, and we've been arguing throughout that time that the economy doesn't work for people and planet. And we try and come up with ideas about how you'd radically reform the economy uh, so that it both operates within environmental limits, but also looks after people's well-being. Uh, and we come up with ideas that we try and work with partners, either in communities or in businesses or in organisations, to put in effect so that we can kind of give examples of what the new economy could look like. Uh, we're going to be talking later about the horribly tough economic conditions that are going to be coming in autumn in the wake of COVID. You've been arguing that it's not just the left that thinks capitalism is in crisis. Increasingly, the right does as well. And now we've got this odd sight of Boris Johnson fighting with the EU so he can have more state intervention. The pressure to reform capitalism, is it is it coming from across the board? Yeah. And I mean, look, I think that's what's so fascinating, but also quite exciting about the moment that we're in. I think the pressure for change has been building for some time. And yes, you know, it comes from organisations like ourselves and others who have been kind of activists and campaigners around the need for change, either for environmental grounds or social justice grounds for a long time. But actually, there's a public pressure as well, you know, a sense of many parts of our society that something feels like it's not working, you know, the economy's not working for people, society's not working for people, and people want change. And, you know, whether it was a Brexit vote, uh, whether it's a Trump election, there's a sense that people are hankering for something and are expressing their frustration. Um, and, you know, there is an opportunity for that to be turned into a demand uh, for, for genuine change now. And then we're seeing in quarters like business, you know, there's a life debate going on in the business community about the need to reform our model of you know corporate governance and capitalism uh, because they recognize that there is a social demand and pressure um, and the old model uh, is not sustainable um, and something like covid which blows all of that up i think is just focusing the minds at the time of recording, the internal market bill was shaping up to be this government's biggest crisis yet. David Cameron has joined Theresa May, Tony Blair, John Major and Gordon Brown in condemning the move to break international law. Some 30 Tory MPs rebelled or voted against it this week. And earlier, a Zoom conference where Johnson tried to persuade MPs over to his point of view descended into farce and Michael Fabricant singing Rule Britannia, all very, very 2020. Roz, has the government finally bitten off more than it can chew this time? Uh, no, I, I say it hasn't. It's uh, wanted to test whether it was able to get domestic law through the Commons that breaks international law, and it is capable of getting that through the Commons, and that is very shocking. But it's it's basically pulled it off with dissent, yes, but not enough dissent. Do you think the dissent is going to grow, shrink, moderate? What kind of progress is this going to have through the Lords and, and the Commons when it comes back? Uh, it will have a very difficult passage through the Lords. I mean, it won't get through the Lords immediately. The Lords will basically send it back with the passage uh, with the clauses they don't like taken out. And what we may well see then is what's called parliamentary ping pong, where it gets bounced between the two houses as they basically fight each other. And we haven't seen that for quite a long time. It used to happen a bit under Tony Blair, but it hasn't happened much recently. So the question is, by that time, will everyone be so consumed by the awfulness that is the COVID autumn slash winter that the government will just let this drop on the basis that the row has served its optics purpose? And that may well happen. Everything in politics has a, has a concrete meaning, an instrumental meaning in that this is what we want to actually get done and a symbolic meaning. And the symbolic meaning of this seems to be, you know, when in doubt, sticking two fingers up at Brussels will always play well. Do you think that's really what's going on here? Yeah, I think it is. There is, I mean, there's a certain point of principle that the uh, government's making, because any time you want to have, and you claim to be able to have pure sovereignty, which is impossible if you're going to have any kind of international treaty, international trade treaty, it's impossible. But if that's, if you want to argue that you want to have pure sovereignty, then you're going to run up against these problems. You're going to run up against problems in an, any agreement you have with the EU. And that's what the government has done. The question is whether it's capable of compromising a bit further along the line. 
entertaining sideshow this week. What did you make of Ed Miliband versus Boris Johnson? It was fun to watch, wasn't it? It was like, you know, he was he was able to, he was doing a bit of a Ken Clark, of course, from the opposite side, whereas Ken Clark used to do it from uh, the, the Tory side. And he was fierce. It was it was fun to see. And the great the moment at the end when he just challenged Johnson and Johnson just sat there slouched on the benches with his shaking his head in a pitiful fashion. That was that was great to see. But of course, sadly, it didn't change people's minds I don't think and that is the great test ultimately of any parliamentary intervention does it change minds or is it in the context of a majority as big as Johnson's very very hard to do that. Alex you wrote one of your pieces for Byline Times very good they are as well about how Boris Johnson is effectively engineering a disaster here because he's kind of you know the the entire trajectory of this policy was never workable so the only thing that can rescue him is to is to place the blame of a collapse elsewhere. Why are they doing it now? Why are they doing it right now? I think that there's a theory that everything distracts from something else, you know. (laughs) Um, So so this government's strategy is sort of shock and awe of incompetence, a, a, a bullet spray of untruth, knowing there is only so much they can be pulled up on. I mean, if you give the opposition and media one catastrophe clusterfuck at a time, they will dis- dissect it far more in depth and methodically and turn it into much more political capital than if you just carpet bomb them daily with cock-ups. Yeah, it's not so much shock and awe as shock and bore, isn't it? It's so repetitive. It's the same stuff over and over and you, you just become inured to it. What do you make of I mean, Obviously, Keir Starmer was not able to be in the Commons because he's had to self-isolate because someone in his family is displaying uh, COVID-like symptoms. But Labour's position is that they're going to support it if concerns are addressed. But the concerns are that it breaks international law. It's kind of central to the bill, isn't it? Is it you know, can these concerns be addressed in a meaningful way? Uh, it depends. I, I think that there's going to be a few attempts at amending it next time it comes back to the Commons. Uh, I, I think they will be, um, you know, enforced by the changes the Lords make. And I think the the pressure, because the pressure at, at this moment, you know, for a government with a majority of 80, the pressure doesn't come from the opposition. It comes from their own MPs, their, their own lords, their own grandees, voters and the media. And so it, there may reach a tipping point where they have to basically do a backroom deal to insert some kind of safety clause and I think that will probably make it all quiet down. Tim Montgomery in that New Statesman piece I mentioned earlier is absolutely adamant that the kind of internal Tory party is in kind of semi-revolt at the moment and that uh, mm. a, a lot of MPs consider themselves to be almost independent conservatives I think I think that was what his phrase was. Does any of that matter when they can just go well the majority is so huge that we can absorb some rebellions? I think Actually, it boils down to the essentials. Cummings wants to be freed from the shackles of rules. And this is the first shot across the bow on that subject. He thinks Britain can thrive as a sort of international trade pirate. The problem is that for that to happen, they have to stay in place for, I would guess, at least two, but probably three terms, because it will involve a lot of short-term pain. Their only way to ride short-term pain is to whip up hatred and turn this into a sort of culture war, probably using foreigners, be that the EU or migrants, as the peg on which to hang the campaign. So I, I, I think there's dark times ahead. Miata, you're an economist. The rights and wrongs of Brexit aside, which we've done to death on our companion podcast, Romaniacs, what does it do to Britain's economic future if we become known as an untrustworthy country? Well, I mean, if you think about the government's economic pitch uh, post-Brexit, this idea that we will be global Britain, this idea that we'll be trading uh, with lots of partners and in their lives are um, prosperity and, you know, we could argue the rights and wrongs of that. But just assume we take that for given as a granted, take that for granted. You know, that is all predicated on us striking deals with lots of countries, both trade deals, but also, you know, international 
protocols, uh, investment agreements. And if we are seen to be untrustworthy, if we're seen to be a country that you cannot negotiate with in good faith because we go back on our word, it completely undermines that. Um, so, you know, the very thing they say that they're aspiring for, this course of action undermines it. And then there's a more fundamental point for me, uh, which does touch on, you know, Brexit, is that this thing only works, just about only works, if we negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU that allows us uh, to continue trading, you know, with our closest trading partner on good ground, on good terms. And this action and the finance, they might think it's a negotiation tactic, but it sours the relationship. It sours the negotiation. It makes them acrimonious and therefore risk the very deal they say they want to get. And that will be catastrophic in terms of economic impact. So for me, both the kind of the wider global Britain pitch, but also the key deal that we need to get in order for us to have any chance of weathering the kind of the international trade dimension um, of the changes that are in foot, they are risking that. Um, and, you know, it's incredibly dangerous. Is there a kind of a, a maybe a deeper psychological thing at play here in the, in the kind of in the world of free market fundamentalism, not just the kind of rejection of treaties with large international organizations that they don't like, but the idea of rules in the, in and of themselves, the idea that you know rules in general are bad and somehow the market will always sort it out, seems to be very attractive to the iconoclasts in our government right now. Yeah, I mean, I think at the extremes, but I have to say, and I've thought of, you always think that every course of action must have some reason and logic and rationality behind it. it might come from a different value set, but you know there is there is a logic to it, and I, I, I really struggle to see it on this. And you know, my sense is that you know I, I think this is a calculated political act. I think they wanted a row. I think it was very strange for a minister to stand at the dispatch box and say he was breaking the law and they did it deliberately, in part to try to put pressure on the EU, in part, I think, to probably try to distract from domestic affairs as COVID, you know, cases spike and test and trace uh, goes uh, into collapse. Uh, and I think maybe they underestimated the backlash from their own side uh, in all of this. But I think they wanted the row. Um, I think they wanted, you know, Labour to start talking about Brexit again. I think they wanted to revive the old identity politics around remain and leave. And I don't think it's played out exactly as they wanted to. I'd, I'd, beyond that, I don't see that there is any kind of economic or, you know, ideological, um, as opposed to kind of political game behind this. It was very interesting to see that both Starmer and Rachel Reeves used the phrase get Brexit done over the weekend. And if one of them had said it, you'd go, it just slipped out. But two of them, clearly there's been a decision to take this phrase and use it against the government. Obviously, there's a bit of a red rag to Remainers like me. But are, are they smart to do that, to sort of to defang that, that, you know, essentially the three words that won the last election? Well, you know, yeah, if you if you if you take away your, you know, if you take away your passion or dispassion about being in the EU and just think about the politics of this, you know, get Brexit done was incredibly powerful in the election. That's the thing that won it for them. And it wasn't just amongst people who voted to leave, but even people who, you know, voted to remain were so sick and tired of the Brexit debate and the saga and the dysfunctionality and everything else that they just wanted it all to be over. So you know, I can understand why they are sort of pitching a very, you know, pinching a very successful uh, election slogan. And I think that the, the, the thing that they are having to navigate is, you know, the, the politics of Brexit did it for the Labour Party in its heartlands. Um, and they've got to find a way of re-engaging uh, with the, that constituency again, uh, which requires them to move the debate beyond Brexit. Um, and they want the debate to be about competence. Um, and I think the thing that Ed Miliband did, you know, really effectively yesterday was not get engaged in the rights or wrongs of, you know, the withdrawal agreement, but dismantle the government's case based on competence. And the thing that, you know, of all his lines, the bit that really resonated was the point that the prime minister just did not know his staff and was running in a competent government. And I think that resonates with the public because that's what people's fears were before the election, even those that voted for him. And that's the thing that is being borne out through the kind of response to COVID and everything else. So as an electoral strategy, you can understand it. it. It might not appeal to some of us that, you know, have kind of values-based passions about particular issues that we'd like them to take a stronger view on, but I understand the kind of electoral politics of it. 
Ross, Boris Johnson spent the weekend cranking up levels of hysteria as far as possible, arguing that the withdrawal bill gives Europe the power to break up the UK and they are going to blockade our food, apparently. Just this kind of extreme language going for the uh, the most terrifying potential scenario. Does it still work in terms of moving the debate or have people just priced it in? Are people sick of it? I think what he wanted to do was play on the idea that any food delays and all the other things that would like to happen in the event of a hard Brexit, which is what we're going to get anyway, will be the EU's fault and not the UK's. That's really what he's trying to hammer home. Do you think we've moved past this question of him basically disowning the deal that, that he won an election on? Has, has is, is that now a dead debate? Because it was pointed out that you know he won an election categorically on this deal and is now disavowing it. I think that has been lost on large numbers of the public and that was inevitable and I think that he was able to predict that would happen. It's sufficiently complex, this this bill, to be very impenetrable to any but people who have been following this in detail, uh, either from the political point of view or the legal point of view. But it's very difficult to understand the whole issues of UK trade, NI trade, the border, which way goods are going. Are they? It's it really you really have to 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 engage the brain a lot to get to grips with it. And most people, even those who think about politics a lot, don't have time to do that. They just don't have the brain space to engage with that degree of complexity. And what brain space they have at the moment is engaging with, has my kid got COVID symptoms? What's going to happen if I can't get a test? There really is only so much incompetence, as we were saying earlier, that the public can take in. Mm. (laughs) And their main concern is stuff that directly, immediately uh, affects them. And this, as far as they're concerned, doesn't. I think we've all had our RDA of incompetence for this year so far. Uh, Alex, before we move on, uh, it's all going to be okay because we've got a free trade deal with Japan now. Uh, So that's 0.07% of GDP sorted. And the only problem is is it's on even more onerous state aid terms than the EU deal. So that's great. There's trust is able to wave the flag there. You know, how do you think this is going to shake out in the longer term? Is this bill going to go through? Are we going to end up? Is the government going to blow up the talks? It's going to it's going to shake out incredibly badly. Uh, I'll tell you why. We are heading for not just no deal right now, but a a full-blown, bona fide trade war with our nearest and biggest competitor. That's what's happening. There was a way to get to no deal amiably, to get to no deal with we tried, but we just couldn't meet on areas which are of major concern to both sides. Um, This is a way to get to proper trade hostility. And I think we do that at our peril. You do get the impression that, you know, as as it's been said with Trump, the cruelty is the point. Why is he so cruel? Because the cruelty is the point. In the case of Britain, the obnoxiousness is the point. Why are they being so obnoxious? And just as with Trump, you know, the, the masses cheer the tariffs put on China, but ultimately it's the domestic workforce that pays for it and the domestic economy that pays for it. It's exactly six months since Britain's first COVID lockdown, and the government is marking the success of its world-beating corona response by bringing us back to the brink of another lockdown. Guidelines and regulations seem to change by the day. Daily figures for new cases have doubled since the end of August to over 3,000 a day, and 86% of GPs expect another lockdown within six months, according to a BMA survey last week. Every week there's a new relaunch. Last week it was the moonshot, but the government is being left in the dust on messaging by Jedward who are encouraging their fellow musicians to stand up against mask deniers. John and Edward, we hear you. Roz, there's consensus that Britain has performed terribly in the pandemic, but it can be hard to put your finger on exactly why. As the editor of the LSE COVID blog, beyond the obvious problems of locking down too late and sending confused messages, what exactly has our government done that is so uniquely bad? First of all, it was care homes, which was a disaster. People being discharged back into care homes with COVID and no way of finding that out. So the deaths in care homes were atrocious. And can I just, you know, it's worth adding that the way we are treating care homes now is, if anything, even worse with the with people still not allowed to visit much and therefore people with dementia 
suffering more and more and basically dying earlier than they would otherwise do because of these this policy on on visits which we can see say is necessary but is exceptionally cruel and if you think about it as somebody who's not in a care home and to think that you just simply can't have any kind of visits from your family or the very most minimal ones, perhaps once a fortnight, it really is very, very cruel. So care homes have been very bad. Then I think the problem now has been the wasted summer. We had uh, two or three months when cases were relatively low and we could get to grips with the issue of testing kits and Hancock and Williamson as well will have known that the demand for tests would be acute as schools went back and as universities went back and as the economy opened up more. And they don't seem to have anticipated this, or at least not enough. And that's why we're seeing the problems that we are now. There's a huge gulf between what the government announces, you know, be it you know billions on PPE or the moonshot this week, and, and what people can see happening on the ground in front of them. There's, you know, the, we're hearing reports of advice of people being people being advised to travel hundreds of miles for a test when the testing centre at the end of their own road is empty. It just seems a, a huge failure of joining up the announcement with the actuality. If the government has lost its credibility on these announcements, is it, you know, is it possible for science to take up the slack or? Are we simply going to bumble on pointlessly and without conclusion on this? It's very difficult for science, uh, science to pick up the slack because science depends on the data that government actions produce. And if that sounds mm. complicated, let me explain it a little bit better. So the government is trying to test. If it can't test enough people, we don't know what the true levels of COVID in the community are. And we don't know how the true levels, what the true levels of commu- uh, COVID in the community are. That means that scientists can't make decisions based on that. They don't know where the cases are. They don't know where they may, may need to have local lockdowns. They don't know how fast they're accelerating. The information they need, they are denied because of government incompetence. More widely, there's an issue with the government and its relationship with scientists who does it put forward as authoritative? This is very important. You can see it happening with Trump, where you could only exist in the Trump administration as a scientist, as a doctor on sufferance. So who does it choose to foreground? Or do you have a situation, as we're already beginning to see here with the establishment of independent SAGE as opposed to SAGE, where there are scientists saying, no, the government is not necessarily doing the right thing. You shouldn't necessarily trust what the government is saying. And then that creates a lot of confusion and mixed messages for the public. Miata, LBC reported that uh, as of Monday this week, there were no tests available in any of the top 10 COVID-19 hotspots in England. So that's no walk-in, drive-through or home tests available in Bolton, Salford, Bradford, Blackburn, Oldham, Preston. These are the red wall seats. Is Johnson going to pay a political price for the fact that in the places that he he said he would fight for, you can't get a COVID test? I mean, listen, you literally could not make it up. Everyone, including the government itself, has been saying that effective test uh, track and isolate was absolutely central to us uh, beating the virus or at least being able to kind of constrain it uh, and operate uh, whilst it's uh, within the community. They have had months, literally months, uh, to predict, to anticipate there would be an increase uh, in demand uh, for tests and to build the infrastructure and capacity to respond to that. And the fact that they haven't, I think, already kind of crystallizes a sense that, you know, all the polling suggests that the public, you know, were sympathetic at the start of this. This is an unprecedented crisis. It would be hard for any government. Um, You know, they're trying. And that position has hardened as people are now, actually, they weren't prepared enough. They are being incompetent in the response. And I think this just crystallizes it. And in the end, that will have an impact on the politics. You know, it's not showing up in the, uh, you know, polling and voting numbers yet. But, the government's ability to manage this thing that it has done a pretty shoddy job of to this point will be a big electoral test, particularly in those areas, because it comes back to this point of competence. You know, you might like the guy, he might seem jovial, he doesn't seem jovial to me or likable necessarily to me, but to some he does. But if he is incompetent and the government cannot do the basic thing of keeping its people safe, that is an electoral problem for them. You throw in the economics, that's an electoral problem for them. It's also an insult added to injury because a lot of these places, you know, the urban northwest, are the places that have been getting local lockdowns anyway. So you lock down and you can't get a test either. 
it just seems to me it's such a, an obvious case of of, uh, of neglect by area. Economics apart, do you think the country has the capacity to, to take another lockdown mentally? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a good question. It will be grim. Um, I, I suspect what the government's going to try and do is not have a national lockdown, even if, in truth, we have a lockdown in all but name, because we have lots of localised spikes on lockdowns, <laughs> and then we've got some quite tough restrictions put on us. Um, and the thing is, you know, it will be coming in the winter. It will be coming after six months in which people have had to kind of make their peace and reconcile. Uh, it will be tough. It's going to be pretty grim, but you just have to hope uh, that actually some of the resilience, uh, some of the sense of kind of community, some of the ways in which, you know, people did support themselves through the first lockdown um, holds out. And and there is a sense that it is grim, but it's collectively grim. So we pull together. Um, it can go a very different way where there's a lot of anger and discontent and it's socially very divisive. Uh, but I'm the perpetual optimist. So I'm going to hope it's the former and not the latter. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, Alex, one of the really worrying things about this is not so much that the government has done a terrible job, but that they don't know why they've done a terrible job or how they've done a terrible job. Do you think there's understanding in government of what they've got wrong? No. Uh, I, I wrote about this months ago. The mantra, we took the right steps at the right time, even in the face of irrefutable evidence they had not, was incredibly worrying because... Either they had decided the right thing to do in a health emergency was to lie to people, a disaster, or they genuinely thought they had done well, a bigger disaster, since they they could not learn lessons. Announcing on Thursday that rules will become stricter from Monday, when the weather is predicted to be really lovely over the weekend, is a repeat of the idiocy of announcing pubs would close tomorrow on a Friday, and it hints to me at the latter. I think they are genuinely clueless. Let's talk about the moonshot for a minute. This enormously contentious idea that everybody's <laughs> going to get a test once. Don't laugh, Alex. It's a very serious moonshot. The idea is everybody gets a test once a week with 10 million tests a day at a cost of £100 billion. And there will be digital passports enabling you to go to mass gatherings once you've been cleared. <laughs> Wired magazine. Stop laughing. Wired magazine, because it's prone to false positives. It's almost impossible to understand. Alex, give us your verdict on the moonshot. I'm sure you're a huge fan. Now, look, everyone constantly likes to say dead cat to everything. <laughs> and I always explain on the show why it's not a dead cat and what a proper dead cat's characteristics are. If you ever wanted to see a bona fide example of a dead cat, moonshot is it. The government was caught on the back foot by, by the Sunday Times leak on the internal markets bill. It was really struggling to find its footing. So they started talking moonshot. I suspect we will hear very little about it in weeks to come and eventually it will disappear. What surprised me was that it was instant giganticism. Ferry Johnson, you know, it reminded me of like, we're going to put a new bridge on the Thames or there's going to be a floating airport or a bridge to Scotland or, you know, flying Buckingham Palace, just you know, teenage giganticism, something big Yeah, is what he tends to reach for. Yeah, and, and it's the thing that gets them into trouble every time because actually their targets are not realistic. So if you stand up and say, we're going to have the best track and tracing system in the world, well, you instantly close off several avenues, which is to go to other countries and say, can we look at your app? Maybe we can adjust it. So instantly you're trying to create this mythical thing that will be better than everyone else. And inevitably, this, this has been the pattern, you end up with nothing. Not a world-beating system. You don't even have a good enough system. Ross, before we move on to talk about the economy, how do you think Corona is going to develop in the UK over the autumn? What do you think the government will do? As in, what do you think the government ought to do? I think the government will come under intense pressure to adopt what's known as a Swedish strategy, particularly from the right-wing press, without necessarily asking the important questions as to how Sweden and the US are different, for example, and why what is basically a similar kind of strategy ended up so differently in each country. Uh, or it will have to encourage the elderly and vulnerable to shield again in order to keep 
the pressures on the NHS under some sort of control because testing as well will not be able to keep up with demand fast enough even if it happens uh, a boom happens in a matter of weeks as Matt Hancock has promised now that is not going to be fast enough at the rate of the virus is spreading. I also think that they may have to switch from 14-day isolation to 7-day isolation, which is what France has already done this week, on the basis that the virus is usually nearly always passed on in the first five days. And anyway, people don't keep to a 14-day quarantine, so you might as well not bother asking them to. Away from the competitive politics of COVID, the economic cost of the pandemic is about to become clear on an enormous scale. UK unemployment figures rose to their highest level in two years this week, with young people hit the hardest. There were 156,000 fewer young people in employment in the three months to July. The Institute for Employment Studies predicts another half a million to 700,000 redundancies in the autumn, the worst joblessness in a generation, and food bank charity the Trussell Trust warns that at least 670,000 additional people will become destitute as we get closer to Christmas if the government withdraws COVID support from low-income households. Miata, economic crises don't repeat in the same way every time, but this is the first time we will be experiencing real mass unemployment since the mid-90s, and it's happening in the age of zero-hours contracts and the permalancer and all these innovations. Are we socially, mentally and economically equipped to deal with that kind of mass unemployment? No. Um, and the reason I say no, and I don't say it lightly, is just because, you know, the 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 crunch that's coming, the hit that's coming comes off the back of a decade where we have basically worn down our resilience. Um, so whether that's, you know, the way in which our social security system has been denuded, whether that's the rise of precarity in the workforce, uh, whether that's the fact that actually for 10 years living standards have pretty much not budged, which is unprecedented historically, it means that there's very little give in people's day-to-day lives. You know, people are living many hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck. So there's very little wiggle room and give to withstand this. And the things that we would need at a structural level Uh, have been weakened to respond to that. So it's going to be tough. But that's why I think it's the kind of crisis that is going to act as a pivot point uh, at a moment of rupture and going to drive change uh, just because it's going to be painful. uh, And therefore, that pain is going to translate into anger and translate into a a genuine outpour of the need for change. Mm. I mean, there are loud calls to extend the job retention schemes, but there are equally strong arguments that government support for jobs can't become an open-ended commitment. The economy has to run as an economy. Do job retention schemes like pay and wages solve this problem? Or can you know, do, do we need something more structural to raise unemployment on a permanent basis? So long term, of course, we need something uh, more structural, but but we are in a moment of crisis. Um, and it's a crisis, by the way, that's been created by the fact that governments are asking, you know, people to act in a certain way, are, you know, putting parts of the economy in, on freeze. So it is right that government has to intervene in order to support us through that and through that transition. Uh, and, you know, for me, the, the, the question of the job retention scheme, no one's saying it should be in place forever, mm-hmm. but it is a necessary measure in the short term as our economy adjusts to the fact that this pandemic exists. Um, And if the government removes it, the impact on unemployment is going to be absolutely profound. So they've had the warning. Um, And, you know, I think the the space they need to operate in is because, yes, some sectors have opened up. The space that we need to be operating is one in which we say, look, certain sectors are not going to rebound, either because they're still shut down, like uh, arts and the culture, or because, because of social distancing reasons, they're not operating at full capacity. And in those instances, it is absolutely right that we've put in place measures to support people. Um, But we need to combine it with retraining uh, in some instances and placing people into the sectors where jobs are being created. And there is a big role for government as we talk about investment-led growth, fiscal stimulus, to invest in things like green investment, like, you know, social uh, care, health care, public services that can generate jobs quickly. Um, And then we think about ways in which we train and place people into the jobs that are being created. The Trussell Trust points out that people using food banks are disproportionately from black or black British households. We've had a summer of, you know, many people would say probably the the largest instance of consciousness raising, shall we say, on racism in a very, very long time. Do you think that they will that will change 
white voters' ideas of the impact of poverty, the, the, the fact that it does fall disproportionately on ethnic minorities. Do you think that's, that's going to become a mover in the, in, in the political approach to, to issues of food poverty? I hope so. Look, I think the honest answer is that it could go two ways. Uh, I think the best case scenario is that it does uh, create that sense of awareness, but it also, in that, uh, creates that sense of uh, collective a collective fight, um, because I think there is huge intersection between class and race. And one of the challenges we've had is that, you know, at the most toxic sides of our politics, uh, you know, class and race has been a divisive issue rather than an issue that unites. The best case scenario is one in which, you know, there is a sense that for working class people who are at the sharp end of this, that, that their fight is fundamentally linked with the fight uh, of racism. Um, and the, the two sides come together in order to push for things that structurally need to be made better for us to both deal with poverty, institutional racism and how racism impacts on inequality, but also how it impacts on class. The other side of it is that we have the politics of divide and the othering uh, and the scapegoating of people who are either a different colour or a different nationality. And I think at this point it can go both ways. I'm hopeful, I'm desperate that it goes down the former because that's one of our routes to change. That's when we start to change our politics. But there will be many that will be trying to exploit it so it goes down the route of the latter. Roz, um, ironically, on raw figures, the economy itself has been recovering relatively quickly in that we've seen, you know, expansion since the lockdown has been eased. Well, the forecast for jobs and for inequality is very bad. And in fact, job losses are predicted to slow down that recovery. What, what does it mean when the, you know, in quotes, health of the economy is divorced from what people are actually experiencing? When there's a lag between what the figures say and what the experience on the ground is. Yeah, well, you, know, you turn on the news and it says, well, there's been a rebound of 6% in GDP and you look out the front door and yeah. you don't see the evidence. Well, I mean, the risk for the individual is that uh, you start thinking if you're out of work, for example, that it's your fault um, and that you just have to work a bit harder, try a bit harder and you'll get a job. And But that's not bad for the overall economy. The real harm does actually come when the stats come through and you can see how high unemployment is, you can see how the economy is struggling and then it becomes a society-wide problem and, and people begin to panic because they think yes we are in recession yes we're in real trouble i can't spend at the moment i must save that just creates a spiral where things get worse and worse and then that's the problem that you that you then see while we're in this kind of artificial slightly artificial situation where the true scale of unemployment has not yet filtered through partly because of furlough then it can be quite it can be quite confusing. Work is often where you find your identity when you're in your twenties. And I mentioned earlier that, that young people have suffered, you know, disproportionately badly from the the, the current changes in their in uh, in employment. You ran a piece on the COVID blogs, LSE COVID blogs last week, with the headline "The New Pessimism: How COVID nineteen has made young people lose faith in their own agency." Do you think there's going to be long term effects for a generation that's kind of starting in life with a bias against hope? The evidence is actually yes. We ran some research on LSE COVID a couple of months ago that showed that people who grew up during some sort of epidemic or pandemic are less likely to trust governments. And even more worryingly, they're less likely to trust democracies. I think there will be that impact. People, Young people will feel that government has let them down, that its power to do good in their lives is less. So it is, yes, extremely worrying. Alex, some of the people who are losing their jobs in in this autumn, some of them, not all by any means, but some will be experiencing poverty and distress for the first time or for a rare time in their lives. Do you think we could see another you know, situation like negative equity in the 90s when economic trouble started to bite politically into the middle classes? I'm not sure. I mean, if you ask me any other time, on any other country, I'd say yes, but there's a couple of push-pull factors that are working against that. You know, banks have been incredibly tight with mortgages for a decade now. And also, I think that the notion that property is the only sure investment is now so deeply ingrained in the British psyche and only intensifies at times of economic stress. Plus, arguably, I mean, it's, it's never been so... If you know, for those who have kept their jobs, it's never been so easy to save up for a deposit 
because there's fuck all to spend your money on. Yeah, I was thinking, apart from the, pro- the property itself, the idea that a lot of the kind of middle classes in the, in the southeast have been largely isolated from the consequences of politics since you know for ten years since the mm. since the financial crash. And it, the political needle only really moves when the when middle class people start to feel it. At the moment, the government's polling is holding relatively steady. I mean, it has dropped off immensely. They were they had a twenty six point lead last year this time but it's holding relatively steady at the moment because i think it's being pulled up by a sense of brexit tribalism so there's a danger for johnson there if he does go to a sort of crash out no deal on january that is quite a final result so where's his next war because those people who were supporting him because of a sort of sense of brexit loyalty when that is actually ultimately done, um, what happens when they start to assess his actual performance as a prime minister, the government's performance on the economy? I think there's a big danger for them there. Just before we wrap up, state aid is back on the agenda. What kind of? I mean, we've heard we've heard talk about how Dominic Cummings wants to kind of create this kind of British Google and he's going to make Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos' spring from the earth like the skeletons in Ray Harryhausen with his amazing state aid. What kind of state aid do you expect to see the government being able to actually bring into effect if it gets its exemptions from the EU and Japan, which it now needs as well? I've read several things on this recently and I'm convinced this is just both economically and historically illiterate. The notion that if you fall behind in the technological race, you can somehow catch up by state subsidy, that the state can create a Google or a Microsoft from scratch by giving giving them seed money. The fastest way is to attract the giants that are already in existence or emerging to your country. For that to happen, you need an open trading environment, you need absolute regulatory stability, and you need to be open to as big a pool of international talent as possible. Everything this government is doing has the opposite effect. Miata, finally, uh, as as you've said throughout the the, the podcast, you you want to see big change, you want to see radical economic reform. This government also says it's radical, just in the opposite direction. Do you think that they have a coherent vision for the economy of Britain beyond the buzzwords like levelling up and build back better? No. Uh, I, I generally don't. I don't think they know what their political project is. I don't think they have a clear sense of the change that they're trying to affect. And I think they're very driven by events. Uh, and for me, that's where the opportunity is, because what we've learned is that they are hugely susceptible uh, to public pressure. They are hugely susceptible to events. And that creates uh, the, you know, the space for those of us that are clearer about the change that we think needs to be put in place to apply pressure on them. Uh, and, you know, I think the three areas where it feels like there is a head of steam is, you know, out of this has to come a new social settlement that looks to, you know, enshrine some of the protections that we've just not seen uh, through this pandemic. I think the second one is on inequality. This is what does speak to the levelling up agenda. But I think defining it in much sharper terms about both inequality between people and places and applying pressure for them to take some of the decisions that they will need to to make that happen. And the final one is preparing for, you know, the bigger crisis of climate change in a way that we didn't prepare for this pandemic. Um, And so, you know, there is the opportunity for us to mobilize for us to act in a coordinated way to apply pressure so that the decisions that they're making now and in the next year or two that will fundamentally change our economy but not in a deliberate way because they haven't really got a plan um, those decisions are forced uh, to do the set of things that drive some of the structural changes that we need to happen well, we probably need cheering up at the end of this edition of Grimness and COVID. So let's finish the podcast with our panel's escape routes, the books, films, music, TV, or whatever that are taking their minds off their Twitter feed. Miata, what are you reading or listening to or watching to free your brain? Um, it's not very, it's not 
very um, upbeat. I'm reading All Out War. It's almost like I want to relive the whole Brexit horror again. <laughs> 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 that is what I'm reading at the moment. You're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> how, how grim must things be that you want to go and relive the happy days of 2016? <laughs> How'd you go watch Selling Sunset like a normal person to cheer yourself up? This is insane. Alex Andreo, how about you? Okay, so I'm doing what I have uh, named micro DIY. Okay, hear me out. Right? I think, I think we're going to be spending a lot of time at home for the foreseeable. So I walked around the house with a notepad and identified every single little thing that bugs me. You know, the, the sink that doesn't drain quickly enough, a little cracked tile, the bulb that needs changing, all of that. And, and so I prioritized the low-hanging fruit, cheap stuff that is easy to fix, and I fix a few every week, and it has been immensely happifying. That's amazing. There's probably a daytime TV show in that. DIY yes. 101. <laughs> DIY 999. Marie Kondo of Home Improvement. Micro Kondo, that's what it is. <laughs> Ross, how about you? What have you been listening to, watching, reading, looking at? Uh, I went for a long walk in the South Downs yesterday, which is what I did a few days before lockdown kicked in in March. And so I'm hoping that this isn't also an awkward point. <laughs> Again, but it was it was very beautiful yesterday, and uh, yeah, it was it was just it just got my mind off all this hell show quite effectively. Well, we know that if lockdown happens, it's because you made it happen with your psychogeographic walk. You it into existence. No going to Sussex anymore now. <laughs> well, mine is, of all things, a new Public Enemy album. It's called What You're Going to Do When the Grid Goes Down. And it's really, really good. I didn't think that, I didn't think Public Enemy had a new, uh, had a good album in them anymore after however many years it been But it's absolutely fantastic. It's exciting. There's a new version of Fight the Power on it. Guest appearances from the Beastie Boys and Nas and all kinds of people. And if you're an aging B-boy like me, or even a young B-boy, or B girl uh, give it a go it's out on Friday I've been playing it to death and that is the end of the podcast thanks to me as a fan bully thanks for coming in thank you for having me thanks to our regulars Alex Andreo and Ros Taylor it was my pleasure thank you don't forget our live zoom on September the 24th free to all Patreon backers search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to support us amongst other things as well as mugs and t-shirts you will get a shout out on the podcast like this Hello from me to Tom Edwards, David Tittle and Kristin Pearson. And many thanks from me to Celia, Sidara and David Lidicote. Hello from me to Roger Barnes, Kelly Walton and Valeria Martinelli. And finally, a big shout out from me to Gordon Summers, Jeffrey Searle and Malcolm McLean and his world-famous Supreme team. The Bunker was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. All audio production is by me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.